the Snow Only Property Podcast. Brought to you by Snow Only, the world's largest ski property platform. The only dedicated ski property podcast. Hi, I'm Mark Lightfoot from Snow Only. In episode two, I'm talking to Paul Bukovic from H2 Real Estate. Paul talks about the current property trends in Japan and gives us some top tips on buying your dream ski property. The Snow Only Property Podcast, brought to you by Snow Only, the world's largest ski property platform. Mountains of property at snowonly.com. This week on the Snow Only Property Podcast, we are diving into Japanese real estate market, where we are speaking to the very knowledgeable Paul Bukovic, who is a director of sales for H2 Real Estate. We will cover topics such as the enormous amounts of snowfall in Japan, the history, the future of real estate in the era, and asking if the bubble has burst for property appreciation. Paul, welcome to episode two of the Snow Only Property Podcast. Thanks, Mark, for having me. I'm honored to be here. Pleasure. Uh, so, an easy one to start with. Can you tell us a little bit about H2 Real Estate, the history of Naseko, what you specialize in, what service you offer to buyers and sellers, flights, etc.? Give us your intro. Okay, great. Why don't I start with a little bit of the history of, of the area, okay, of, of Naseko and how it's kind of developed into uh, what the market it is today. So, so basically, the area itself was um, sort of discovered by the international market, let's say, um, in the in the '90s, and probably you know even earlier than that by some you know early uh, international skiers that maybe discovered it well before that, but kept the secret to themselves. But in the in the '90s, um, we had a number of Australians uh, explorers who kind of came and actually set up uh, small businesses here, running uh, rafting and guiding companies, namely guys like Ross Carty, uh, Ross Findlay. Um, these are some of the the more well known um, guys that that got established here, and they they started this adventure tourism uh, concept um, in the region, and sort of were doing that year round, summertime whitewater rafting, wintertime they were offering ski lessons um, to school groups and and maybe some of the international uh, people living in Tokyo and whatnot, and eventually uh, we started to see some Australians establish travel businesses over here, uh, guys like Peter Murphy, who established Ski Japan, which originally was known as Snow Wave, and Ski Japan and Deep Powder Tours, these early, uh, you know, uh, travel companies, they started to bring over, you know, reasonably wealthy Australians um, who would come over for their ski holidays in that sort of peak January powder period. And they, those Australians that came over here, they fell in love with it. And, and they, what they, but they quickly recognized was that their, the property where they were staying, the, whether it was a, a Japanese pension or a Japanese hotel, it was just really dated. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't designed to deal with a, a one or two week holiday. It was designed for a domestic market where you'd have people normally stay one night or two nights traditionally um, in the domestic market. Was the resort set up? at? at I, I, absolutely. The ski resort was here. Okay. Um, what we know today is uh, in Niseko is Annapuri or Mount Annapuri or the, the Niseko United was established and you had all, all five ski resorts, including Moiwa, Anapuri, Niseko Village, which was originally called Higashiyama, um, Hirafu, and Hanazono, which is known as Grand Hirafu. Um, that was all established. And, and Tokyo, you know, Tokyo, which, you know, they really established the Hirafu, Grand Hirafu area, and Hena, they developed Hanazono. 
and Higashiyama, that area, which again, all these, all these ski resorts originally were established by farmers, right, in different sections, and they ran ski lifts. Uh, and eventually they were taken over by various corporations. So Higashiyama originally was, I think, taken over by Prince Hotel or the Cebu Holdings Group. And they built, you know, they brought, um, you know, the Prince Hotel, which is now the Hilton. They brought that to the air area. Um, and then Annapuri, which is run by Chuo Bus. You know, they they probably established the gondola. And there's, I can't remember the name of the, the big hotel over there, but they would have helped bring that the big hotel over to Annapuri that's there. And then Moiwa, which is over on the, on the, far bookend, which is little Moiwa. That's, you know, again, always been a very locals hill and is now is sort of being controlled by, uh, again, again, another outside international interest. Is that part of the Niseko United yet? Uh, it's not, no. Moiwa's not in Niseko United just yet. Uh, but, you know, fingers crossed in the in the coming years as, as yeah. the area expands. That, that I mean, there's some rumors of some very high-end brands coming into that area that's obviously going to change oh, the yeah. perspective, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, we'll come back to that. Okay. In a little bit, but, but yeah, so the area was, was sort of, it was, it was established as a ski resort and the zones that everybody knows now they've, they've always been here, but back in the sort of early two thousands, when the Australian market kind of discovered this area and developers uh, from out of Australia started to discover it, the, the opportunity was there was a lot of old pension owners um, who, you know, were looking to retire. Okay. They were, they had these older, 30, 40 year old Japanese properties. They needed a lot of love and attention to sort of maintain them. Um, and the, the, the domestic market, the, the tourism market was coming down. So what originally was probably a great lifestyle choice for these guys jumping out of Tokyo um, in, the, in the late eighties or early eighties. Now all of a sudden they had these, you know, these old structures that, that they really didn't want to operate anymore and they were getting tired. So their opportunity was to acquire the, those assets um, and either uh, renovate them or tear them down and build new condominiums. And in the first instance, there was plenty of land, actually ski in, ski out land that you could acquire. Um, and so guys started to develop, Australian developers started to develop condos there, like Alpine Ridge, First Tracks, um, and The Vale. That was sort of the first wave of development here. And then as the tourism, you know, as, as, the, as the Aussies discovered it and fell in love with it, and as sort of the word got out, you know, we started to, you know, eventually Hong Kong discovered it because Eventually, we started to get some international flights that came directly into Chitose. And namely, you know, Hong Kong was sort of the lead on that with Cathay Pacific um, and Dragon Air. They started to, to fly in directly. And I bet you that was influenced quite a bit by pilots, right? So often what we see in some of these uh, ski resort towns around the world, pilots often discover um, these destinations first. Um, and they do have a lot of influence in where flight patterns go. And yeah. so that's a good way to obviously, you know, that's a, one way of actually finding out where the next, the next spot may yeah, be when, right. you, when you start hearing of pilots uh, investing into areas, you know, so, so early on. Yeah, very good. It's very easy to track. Okay. Um, that, that information, you just go and ask that to your local real estate agent. So the first sort of generation, first wave of international Niseko was sort of 2002 through to 2009. Um, and that was the first real push into the Australian market. And we started to see signs of, you know, Hong Kong getting interested. And then, and then of course, we hit into the financial crisis. And that sort of put the brakes on development, but allowed the tourism to really take off in that stage. So from 2009 yeah. to sort of 2012, what we saw was tourism just kept going, right? And, and these properties we had built and sold, they were starting to fill up more and more. 
and the returns, you know, were really strong, just, you know, despite what had happened with the financial crisis, that was really going well. And then, of course, we, you know, unfortunately, we had another uh, small disaster in 2011 with the, the, the earthquake, which, you know, kind of put us back a little bit again from a real estate perspective and, and the holiday perspective. But then two years after that, 2013 is when we, we started to see the recovery. And in that recovery, what we saw were the big Singapore and Hong Kong developers come in and, st- you know, stake their claims in the upper village, um, right. upper and middle village. And those guys, funny, they always told us from 2009 to 2011, while we were on the road, on the road talking to some of these bigger real estate developers in, the, in, in those markets, they always told us, they said, just wait, don't worry, you know, we're coming, but it's just a timing thing. And now we're starting to see some of those guys, you know, come to fruition now with their projects. So the second wave was sort of 2013 to sort of to up to 2019, really. That was sort of the com- the coming of age for the Asian market, and we started to see not only Australian developers, but now we have Hong Kong, Singapore. We still got you know um, probably some some Aussies doing stuff here, but we're starting to see you know all walks of life of developers sort of coming into the area looking for their opportunity because, as you know, the beaches around Southeast Asia are pretty well developed, and so these guys are looking for opportunity for you know to develop and, and to sell into their markets. Um, and so we're, we're now contending with those uh, developers. And in the meantime here locally, you know, the real estate agents and, and real estate companies, um, you know, they're, they're constantly looking for opportunities as well, which we're sort of always looking ahead to the future, right? Where, where's the next little spot? Where's the next hotspot? And so the local developer agents have sort of, you know, um, maybe retreated from the the main blue chip areas, um, yeah. and they're off, you know, seeking the next opportunity. So, as you know, we're out in Ferrano, you know, sort of establishing markets in Ferrano, and we're sort yeah. of some establish some other local markets here. So, yeah, that's the sort of that's sort of where we're at as far as the you know the real estate side of things. The resort itself, um, I think we've seen quite a bit of dramatic, you know, quite a bit of change on the resort over the last decade. Um, we've got Hanazono now has a, has a, obviously has a Park Hyatt, um, and these guys have just built a brand new gondola and I think another uh, gondola chair, you know, whatever they call it, gondola chair, um, and and sort of the Hanazono area of, of the ski resort is you know you can really see that they're they're putting money into the resort and into their um, their transportation and and really getting it established for the next sort of two decades so that they can expand the resort. But that's so important. I think for all and anywhere in the world, I think you're going to have, um, if you're going to build the high-end hotels and, and you can't have you know, a five-star hotel and a two-star resort, right? So it has, Correct. To, it Correct. has to go hand in hand. You need high-speed chairlifts and stuff. I, I, remember, I remember going skiing in the Seiko and do you still have the one man um, chairlift at the top? Yeah, yeah, the pizza box. I mean, that st- still exists. Um, and and you know, to some degree, you know, some people may argue, you know, it should be. Why is it so ancient and why not? I think there's also something to be said about you know a little bit of rustic charm. I'm not saying it shouldn't be necessarily safer, oh, but it's authenticity, you, isn't it? That's, it, it? It is authentic, and it is part of the the thing that makes Niseko cool. If you want to access, you know the out, out, outward bounds, you know, out of, outside of um, yeah. the side country of the area, then, then, you know, you actually have to do a little bit more than just get on a, a really comfortable chair. You're going to have to get on a single chair and, and take that, that sort of solo lift up there. And it, it does limit, you know, really who should get up there because one of the great things about Niseko, Mark, is that it's uh, Anna, Mount Annapuri, the, the, 
the mountain range that it's on, it's like a cylinder, right? And it's cylindrical. It's not like maybe where you guys are on a massive craggy range in, in, uh, in Europe or in Canada where, you know, you have to ski along one side. Ours is, it's a 360 sphere. So you can actually, once you get inside the resort, you can literally ski around the whole, the whole mountain. Okay. So, um, and it's, that's, it's great for, for experienced skiers, but if you make it easily accessible for, you know, intermediates and beginners who may not fully understand what they're getting themselves into when you have 14 meters of powder snow a year, um, you do want to have some restraints uh, of where people can actually go. So I, I know it's, it's a little bit, yeah, to say there's a pizza box that gets you up to the top of the resort is not great, but it, it also, it does help, you know, us manage um, where people can get to, to a degree. So I've skied there quite a few times now. And, and it's obviously, I think for anyone that's listening, it's so different to say what they would be used to, let's say in the three valleys in France, where you have, you know, 600 kilometers of piste. It's very, very different. Oh, totally. totally. you, know, um, you know, the average snowfall in, in and around France is four to five meters, probably on a good year. Right. And we right. in in the Seiko, it's 14 to 17 meters. Yeah. And everyone that I speak to asks, are you sure? And I'm like, yep, it's, it's that much. Yep. Yeah. I've never skied on powder like it. And I think that anyone that is considering going, you have to try it. I think it's, it's Correct. Stuck. I, and it doesn't need to I, be big because you can dive into the trees and you find your powder it, fields and stuff. It's an incredible exactly. way to ski. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, when I, coming from, I'm originally from Canada, so, you know, used to some pretty good skiing myself. Um, but one of the things, that, the first thing I noticed here was for the price of a lift ticket, okay, which is, I think at the moment, probably around in US dollars, um, about 70 or 80 bucks USD uh, for a day ticket. You're basically getting a heli ski experience okay, in a re- in, <laughs> right. in resort, okay. And what does a heli ski ticket cost to get a lift? Eight hundred bucks a day. I've never really thought of it like that. Do you know what I experienced? Actually, I learned to snowboard there because I there was no fear. Right. Yeah. I yeah, mean, correct. I'm going to fall correct. over. I'm going to fall yeah. over. It's not going to make yeah. a lot of difference, yeah. and you you don't get the you don't get the pain after each day. It's just like landing <laughs> pillows, and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Exactly. To try it. Okay, so I think we've covered the enormous amounts of snow for each year. So just to okay. repeat, 14 to 17 meters, everybody. So get over it. Go. <laughs> As you, as you rightly pointed out, from, say, 2013 going onwards, it's kind of really become the flagship of Japanese ski resorts, right? It's, it's the, the, Correct. the well-known. Um, what yep. do you kind of see the future from now, I guess? I think the future for now, obviously, we're sort of entering into the, the next phase of, um, of the market. And, you know, it's, it's not going to get cheaper here, okay? We're sort of entering into – there's all sorts of things happening, obviously, in in the current market and, and when obviously borders open up again, we're, I think we're going to see a revamp and an improvement now in infrastructure. Okay. On, on the ski resort and off the ski resort in the next decade, which really kind of drives up the luxury end of the market. Okay. So I think with the park Hyatt um, opening and, and there's a number of other brands that are in the area, like, you know, Amon's sniffing around the area and a number of other hotels, the only way for, Seco to go is is really up into that luxury end as far as up near the ski resort and then off the ski resort i think we're going to see a, a plethora of other you know brands come into the area um that will sort of give it a bit more diverse uh range of uh, product but i think we're going to see a real expansion of the of the property market between basically niseko Rusutsu, and niseko and kiroro 
um, and we're going to see a lot of, uh, we're going to basically see, you know, the, the area expand in, in those directions. From an investment point of view, let, let's go obviously to, let's kind of jump to that question because we're on it. So there's some, some people kind of suggest that the bubble was burst, which is why they're looking at places like Ferrano and other resorts where they want to kind of get in at a low point and then see the, the, the ski resort develop like Niseko has. Yeah. Obviously, that's, that's the wonderful idea that everyone has. But you seem to suggest that obviously with more infrastructure coming in, the price is still going up, that there's still investment opportunities for people. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, there's, all, there's always opportunities in, in this market, even in Niseko. The, the bubble is far from bursting. I mean, and what people are experiencing currently in their own home markets and, and what, we have to val- what we have to offer sorry, over here in Niseko is uh, it's, it's, we look really cheap. Okay. And you only, and like, as you know, you don't have to look at, you know, snow only go, go compare a, a condo, you know, a ski and ski of condo in Europe versus a ski and ski of condo in, in Niseko and look at the price difference or, or one of these beautiful chalets, just go compare the price difference. There's a, a long way to go as far as the, the capital appreciation in Niseko. And I get it. Don't get me wrong. I get it. People, if someone was looking at the property market here in 2015 and then they came here in 2019 and of course, you know, it looks like it's, it, it has gone up quite a bit. Um, but when the market returns here next year, um, I think we're going to quickly see, you know, again, prices continue to rise up. We're, we're nowhere near the threshold of what, you know, the, the Asian market can, can consume. Yeah, I, actually, that comes back to a point I want to make. I, I think the last time I went skiing in the Seiko, I was living in uh, Phuket in Thailand at the time, and there was actually quite a lot of Thais skiing on the nursery slopes. Yeah. Obviously, they're not so used to the snow. But obviously, so we, we initially it was Australia, then you're looking at the likes of Hong Kong, Singapore, now we've got yeah. Thailand. I mean, how much further, uh, let's say, left do we have to go, or can we go? Are you seeing that people coming from the UK, are you seeing people coming from France that want an alternative to the Alps? I think, you know, Niseko is going to be a bit of a, glo- it's a global, it's a global product, okay? Of course, access is always going to limit, you know, some markets um, to, a, to a degree. Um, whether it's the UK or over North America, but at the moment, what we're seeing are we are seeing Americans literally living in on the West Coast who are acquiring in Niseko. Okay, that that's that's today the Niseko and in Toronto, Hawaii, Hawaii, a lot of Hawaiians um, interested in in coming over here as well. And and I think when if you go towards you know to the to the other side, you know beyond Southeast Asia, I think Europe. There's there's plenty of Europeans. I think. The European buyers that we have now, they're probably based in Asia. And again, it, sometimes it gets a little bit confusing for me because there's a lot of, we have a lot of French uh, nationals who've, who've acquired over the years. But again, most of them are based somewhere in Asia for a large part of the year. I think, though, the UK market, it's probably going to take a little bit longer to educate them and, and get them over here and, and you know get them access because, again, they have some great opportunities as well, whether in Europe or in North America. And, and it's, you know, the flights are, are quite direct. Obviously, the, the people that have bought there, and obviously we know the destinations that people are coming from. COVID's obviously had an effect. I think we spoke about this before, about the desire for what property people want. Maybe it's more of a chalet than an apartment. What's the current state? Are people looking for an investment? Are they looking to move over there? What's the, what's the kind of general buying purpose? I assume it's changed from pre-COVID to, let's say, post-COVID or at least uh, Yeah, it's... Um, it's changed a little bit. I mean, there, there are basically three, you know, sort of buyer types. I've got, 
you got developers. Developers haven't stopped being developers even in this time, so they're out looking for the, they're still out there looking for their uh, positions. Then you have what I call the investor types, okay, and those are uh, those are you know guys who guys and girls who have a real acute sense of what's going on in the market and that they're looking for opportunity, whether it's land, it could be a distressed condo or distressed house. They're just looking for value. Okay. Those and guys there are, is still looking. plenty of value there. Oh, with land. Plenty of there. And there, and there's lots of cash available. Okay. In, in Asia to invest. So if you can show the clients um, value, whether in value in land or value in a house or value in a condo, then, then they're going to look at it. Okay. And, it, and if it's got a return on investment, so if it's got a cash flow, uh, positive cash flow, then then even more interested in, in, in the current state of the market. And then, of course, we've got what I call the family investors. And, and Mark, you'd be very familiar with the family investors. There's a lot of people out there who you may call it YOLO, you know, you only live once, um, you know, type market. They, those guys are now looking at their next family holiday. They haven't been able to get to Japan or and to Niseko for the last two years. They're super keen to actually now get something for the family. Um, because they may not be spending just two weeks here in the winter. They may be able to come and stay for four weeks because of the trend and way people um, you know, are able to work from home. So they may spend four weeks in winter and they don't want to have to be contending with you know, rental rates that are going to you know, probably go through the roof in the next little bit. Um, they want to know that they have their property and they sort of want to establish their own family you know, memories and, and that sort of honeycomb for the kids that are getting older. Right. And they, and, this is the thing. So when when the Asian market started in um, started to do invest here in in, the, in 2000, let's say 13, 14 timeframe, well, a lot of those guys now their kids are now you know teenagers or they're off to university, right? And so they they're now coming back saying, hey, you know, I bought that condo or I bought that smaller house in in Hirafu, you know, back in 13. We've actually outgrown it. Let's look for the next thing that's actually going to yeah. be a, a bit bigger, a bit you know something. Not necessarily going to be a rental, you know. I'm, I don't need a rental return. I just want something for the family. So, definitely seeing that family investor coming back into the market. They, you know, the last sort of month or so since we've started, you know, state of emergency has come off in Japan. It uh, looks like the vaccine rollout is being highly successful in Japan, and and the the COVID rates have come right down. We're seeing those investor types come back to the market, and they're now um, some of them are, are making decisions, and they're and they're actually buying stuff. So I think that's going to lots of people living there at the moment. Yeah, we uh, let's let I'll be honest with you. Unfortunately, in this period of time, we've lost a lot of great talent in the service sector. Okay, so yeah. the hospitality I think, sector. I think across the world, I, I yeah, wouldn't imagine yeah. how and, that is. Yeah, and that, that's yeah. So there's not nothing you know different to anywhere. So we've lost a lot of that. We have had a number of obviously professionals, domestic, okay, Japanese, and let's say uh, expats living in Tokyo who have moved up to the area. It hasn't been in like a massive wave in, in any sense uh, of the you know, but but they definitely have moved in. And then what I'm finding is with some of the um, you know some of the uh, Asian markets that they're thinking about it, okay. Um, even guys like yourself, you know, they're thinking about it. They're like they want to work out how they may be able to do this for six to eight months of the year. But it, it, we have yet to sort of see that. I think we'll see that in the next decade as we see things like infrastructure like the Shinkansen uh, station get, you know, get uh, completed in Kuchan. I think once Niseko gets really connected to the mainland through the, through the train line and through high, the highway system, I think what we'll find then is that all of a sudden Niseko is 
uh, you know anybody could live here yeah i took i took the train up to Niseko actually um from a flight from bangkok and it was such an okay. amazing experience i absolutely loved it um everything's yeah, good so yeah. punctual in terms of timing and it was just perfect for me so let me just move on to something uh, this might be a quick answer from you but is there any options for finance or is every buyer a cash buyer for the majority of, of the deals we do, um, the buyers are, are cash buyers. Um, some of them, of course, are, are using their own home banks uh, for line of credit, and they're sort of borrowing against assets in their home market um, to buy assets over in Japan. And then we have um, some buyers who are, are looking for domestic uh, loans, and they're sort of contacting guys like Tokyo Star Bank, which I believe at the moment has a, a loan facility available for, for ski properties. Um, over the million dollar mark. So, so yeah, you can reach out. We can, and I can introduce you to the guys at Tokyo Star Bank to see if um, you know that's a, a product that's going to suit your investment needs. So, last question, and we're asking everyone in um, our podcast this. So, if you had five hundred thousand uh, dollars to spend on a property, where would you spend it, and why? Would you? I mean, obviously, the areas you're considering. Would you? Would you park the money in the Seiko, or would you consider Ferrano? I think I, you can consider both. I think for those who you know want to get uh, more a more I'll say traditional Japanese experience, you probably would go to Furano, okay, and invest that um, half a million into something like um, I, I would. Uh, if you if you're a condo buyer, I'd go into Phoenix West and I would go get uh, the go get a studio or something uh, that within the fifty million yen budget. Talk to my uh, sales guy Scott Toby over there and see what he can get you for fifty million yen. But if you're Niseko bound and you want to be, you know, that's where your if that's where your friends are, um, then probably what I would do is recommend at the moment I would recommend looking at buying an existing structure. Okay, like a if you're a chalet uh, buyer, I'd look at buying something off the resort, maybe five to ten minutes uh, by car uh, for about half a million. I'd look. Oh, sorry, not half a million. Sorry, a quarter of a million to to thirty million yen. I would look for you know a, a property that's going to suit your needs that maybe you can do a light renovation on. Uh, for the family, and then I would take the remaining a portion of that uh, of that money, and I would put it into a piece of land, into an area where it's you know where it's starting to just see some growth, um, and where we believe that the uh, the chalet and maybe apartment market is going to grow into the next decade, because the the a lot of the capital growth is is in the land, um, and that's where that would be my investment recommendation for anybody who's new to the market. And just wants to get a foothold in, but they don't want to, you know, they don't want to spend all their money in, in one spot. Great insight. Um, Paul, thank you very much for being on episode two of the Snow Only Property Podcast. I can literally tell you from experience how incredible Japan is. So if you are considering going over there, do it. Um, you will not be disappointed. The powder is amazing. The onsens are great. Um, the lifestyle is great. You can contact Paul via snowrunner.com or you can um, have a look at all his properties on our website. We'll put some links below for uh, to contact Paul anyway. Thank you so much, great. Paul, for your wonderful insight. Very much appreciated. Hopefully, we'll get some people to contact you and ask you some more questions about Naseko and Ferrano real estate. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I wish you, you guys all the best uh, for the new year. Uh, it's snow only as well. Look forward to continue to work with you further on uh, marketing ski properties. Thanks very much, mate. Take care. Bye. Okay. See you, Mark. The Snow Only Property Podcast. 
Brought to you by Snow Only, the world's largest ski property platform. Mountains of property at snowonly.com. The Snow Only Property Podcast is produced by Shark 13 Productions.